As you might imagine, this is a um, a strange month for me. It was 50 years ago, in the summer of 1973, that I preached my first sermon. It was in a little village in the bush bush of Eritrea. That's probably why they asked me. Um, it was also translated, and I remember that it was on Psalm 19. That's all I remember. I don't remember anything else about what it was or what I said. Since then, uh, recently I, just for fun, did some calculation. And this is a conservative calculation, but I've probably preached about 1,500 sermons, which is a reasonable amount. I've also had the privilege of doing that on three different continents and in three different languages. And I don't say that to boast or anything, but just God has given me that ability and that pleasure and that honor and that privilege to be able to serve like that. So now I'm coming to the end of my preaching regularly life. And as you can imagine, that's a period of reflection and of looking back and of being grateful. That's why I'm really enjoying preaching on the uh, uh, texts that some of you have uh, turned into me. There's still time to do it. I probably have enough, but if you still would like to hear a Norman sermon on a particular text, then uh, feel free and uh, let me know that in any way that you can. Um, but I'm enjoying doing it. Number one, I don't have to think up the text myself, which is, is really nice. But um, I'm also noticing, and this is a pretty logical thing that a lot of the themes that have become important to me over the years, and especially in the last uh, decade or so, um, have also been showing up in all all of these uh, texts, which on the one hand is perfectly logical, but it's really nice to just continue to say, hey, this is what I've been thinking about for a long time, and it's also in this text, even though I may not have preached For example, last week I did Genesis 1. I've never, ever preached a sermon on Genesis 1, I believe, in my whole time. I don't think so. I can't remember it anyway, but that may have something to do with getting older. I don't know. Um, So I would also, as these themes come up, uh, I'd like to emphasize them a little bit and and point them out, um, partly in the hope that you will take them with you. Um in your own reading and in your own Bible study and, and, and in your own uh, work as a Christian, but hopefully also that you can take them with you as and if and when you enter into other church communities. Um, you, can, you can add that to the mixture of what you receive there. Um, I will say um, there's a famous quote by Dallas Willard, the theologian, and he, uh, with this quote, kind of uh, puts preaching into perspective. He says, we, and I'm sure he means in the West, have counted on preaching and teaching to form the life of the Christian, but this strategy has not turned out very well. The result is that we have multitudes of Christians who can hardly get along with themselves, much less with each other. It's, of course, a little bit extremely said, but I think there's a a kernel of truth in that. 
So you can pray for me as I make this transition, obviously. Um, what might God have for me in the future? And although I know that my times are in his hands, I really don't have much idea what that's going to look like. Um, so you can um, keep me in your prayers. But So anyway, this is a really special month for me. And by the way, um, the pictures that you'll be seeing today and probably through the next weeks are pictures uh, taken in the New Plymouth area of New Zealand where my son lives. Uh, if I can't find an actually appropriate good picture that fits the sermon, I'm just going to throw these up there. Number one, they're really beautiful. Number two, it connects me to my kids, and I find that uh, there's a Facebook page of Taranaki pictures. And um, so that's where I'm, that's where I'm getting these from. Um, I'd like to read with you this morning uh, two passages. One is from Deuteronomy. There will be passages I'm almost certain that you will recognize. Um, the first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 31, the verses 1 to 8. And this is um, just to remind you, uh, both of these passages occur. Israel, the, the people of Israel were liberated from, from Egypt after 400 years of being slaves in Egypt, came out of Egypt, you remember the ten plagues and the Passover. They then uh, came through the Red Sea after Pharaoh chased them and ended up in the wilderness, ended up at Mount Sinai, and there they received the, the tablets of the law, the, the Torah, the, not the Torah, they received the law uh, from God, and um, then, uh, because of circumstances, largely to, due to their own fault, they ended up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. So the, the generation that had come out of Egypt passed away, and now there was a new generation. And now at the end of Deuteronomy, and the next passage we're going to read, beginning of Joshua, uh, the people of Israel are standing at the, at the point where they're going to leap, or, or not leap, they're walking across the Jordan River is actually what they did, into the promised land. So they're making this huge transition from 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, in the Sinai desert, into coming into the promised land, the land known as the land of milk and honey, the land that they had been, uh, that God had promised to their forefather Abraham so many years ago, to which all of them had been longing to return, and they were, they were just at that point. But of course they knew that it was not going to be easy. There's, uh, there's cities, there's fortified cities in the land, there are giants in the land, there are soldiers. Um, what's this going to be? What's it, are we going to make it? How's it going to turn out? What, are we going to survive? How, how is this going to work? And that's where they were. And then Moses, of course, is um, 120 years old. He's ready to die. Uh, you remember he's not allowed to enter the promised land, so he's not going to make it. And so he's um, commissioning Joshua uh, to be the next leader. So these words, both of the next passages we're going to read, are, are um, words of Moses to, uh, to Joshua. That's not true. The Joshua ones are God's. But anyway, uh, here we go. Joshua, uh, to succeed Moses, Deuteronomy 31, the first eight verses. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them 
And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then we move to Joshua chapter 1. And this occurs after the death of Moses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over to this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that is the sole of your foot will tread upon. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And before I get into this text itself, I just wanted to make a couple comments. If you noticed, um, especially in the Deuteronomy, there's this whole theme right around this point in Israel's history of going in and destroying the Canaanite people who are in the land. God promises to the people, if you go in, I will go before you and I will destroy everybody. And then in, in the, especially in the book of Joshua, uh, there are specific commands given to Joshua and the people, and then later, of course, with the kings, to actually destroy a city, every living being in the city, man, woman, child, and animal. And so this raises the question, what kind of a God is this that would command this kind of, uh, actually today we would call it uh, genocide, I've talked about this before, but I just want to give you just a couple of thoughts that maybe you could pin in your head and, and, and leave with them also. First of all, all of the Bible, including the Old Testament, 
needs to be read through the lens of Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God. When you read passages, especially in the Old Testament, that are like this, that are hard about destruction and about killing and about wiping people out, the place you start with trying to understand these passages is, is with Jesus. And whatever's in the Bible that cannot be matched with Jesus, we need to find out a different way to read it. It doesn't work to say God is this way in the Old Testament and this way in the New Testament. That doesn't work. You start with Jesus, and through the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's how you understand and read the rest of the scriptures. And the fundamental thing that we know about Jesus and about God, also because God tells us, is that his fundamental disposition to us is one of love. His fundamental disposition to us is one of love. All the years that I was in the Netherlands, whenever we would talk about this, people would say to me, yes, he's a God of love, but there's also the God of anger. I want to ask you this question. If you had a child, and many of us do here, and you died, and the child was eulogizing you at your funeral, would you want the child to say, my father was a man of love and a man of anger? Of course you wouldn't. You'd say, my father was a man of love, And when I hit my sister, or when I was bullied at my school, he got angry, obviously. But that's not his fundamental disposition toward me. God's fundamental disposition toward us is one of love. And anger and other sentiments play a role. But when push comes to shove, when we think of God, when we think of Jesus... We think of love. So the question is, does this genocide idea fit in with the idea of of a God of love? And my answer to that is no, which means that we have to read the Bible differently, except I don't know very well how to do that because I haven't really, we haven't been taught it. (laughs) That's a struggle that we're going to have to work through. And there are people nowadays, especially who are thinking about that and coming up with some really good stuff. But it might take a while because we have to change our paradigms. Most of us have been taught that we, at some point, are going to face a God of anger. And I think the Bible's pretty clear that that is not so. I just want you to take that with you and think about it. And, um, and, and as you, uh, whenever these kind of passages come up, but fundamentally this, this concept that God's fundamental disposition toward us is one of love. And there is nothing, says Paul in Romans, that can separate us from the love of God. And John says in his letter, there is no fear in love. In love, there is no fear.
Whenever you struggle with your relationship with God, especially with the issue of, is he mad at me? Is he angry with me? Hold on to those two things. It's as clear as a bell. So the people of Israel are standing in front of the land of Canaan, and and God is sending them in. And their main leader, Moses, is dead or going to die. And they, of course, as you would understand, are pretty nervous. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if this is going to be a success, this project. They don't know what they're going to face. They don't know how hard it's going to be. They've been in the desert for 40 years. And God says to them, through Moses and directly to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And I think he repeats this in these two two passages four or five times. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I just imagine those words hitting those people. Forty years in the wilderness. Ragtag bunch. Heading into this enormously complex and dangerous and challenging mission with battles and with wars, having to clear the, well, not clear the land, but having to make the land inhabitable for them, having to build cities, you build a new culture. And God says to them over and over and over and over and over again, do not be, do not fear, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. And I will never leave you. There's another point in the Bible where the people of God are standing, as it were, on the other side of a huge, huge mission. It's almost comparable where this little ragtag group of people who have almost no resources, are being sent into a new land to do new things and to build a new culture in a way that they they know will cost them dearly. And it's this point right after the resurrection of Jesus. You may remember, Jesus rises from the dead spends about 40 days with his disciples. And he goes up on a mountain. See the similarity there? He goes up on a mountain. I'm sure many of you know this passage. This is what happens. The 11 disciples, Matthew 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There we go. 
some doubted. Perfectly logical. In all those, however many Israelites there were, probably a few hundred thousand at least, I'm sure some were doubting. And here, Matthew says it explicitly. He was one of them, probably. He was among them. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You hear any resonance there? And remember, in Deuteronomy and Joshua, we hear the same message coming twice. Well, it's here in Matthew 28, but it's also in Acts 1. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And again, their minds are going back to this story at the the Jordan River. When when Israel was supposed to be established, that's all what's in the... It's the same thing happening again, just uh, a bunch, 1,600 or so years later. Lord, are you going to do it now? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Two stories of God's people standing at a, on, a, on a precipice, on, a, on a, a transitional moment, moving from one place to another, and moving into a place of great challenge, and also, I'm sure, in both cases, realizing how humanly speaking, inadequate and weak and unable, they are in and of themselves to do what God has sent them to do. A little bit of a ragtag bunch in both stories. Jesus' disciples are standing in the doorway of the new age, the age of the kingdom, the age when Jesus has come, and because of his life, death, and resurrection, the back of evil has been broken. The kingdom is now among us, and everything has changed. And now we move as disciples into the world, And I don't have my image up here of a lifeboat and a colony, but I'm sure you remember that. We're not moving into the world as a lifeboat, pulling people out of the dark world and hoping to bring them to some other place, and most likely only a few of them. We're a colony. We're going out to be planted where God has planted us, 
and to plant our crops and grow our livestock and make our money, if that's what's before us, and to raise our families and to live in such a way that we are witnesses to the fact that this new kingdom has come. That's what Israel was called to do in Deuteronomy, in different terms and in a different culture. That's what the disciples were called to do in Matthew and Acts. And somehow I believe that that's what we're called to do. Even right now. Even in this month. And even in the months to come. Could it be that God is sending us out into I do not know where? No clue. And Jesus is saying, go be my witnesses. If you know my love, if you know my forgiveness, if you know the way I can empower you to love that person that's not lovable, to choose the way of grace, to choose the way of truth, go out and be witnesses to that. Tell people about that. Not just with words, but also with your actions. Make disciples. Draw people in. Talk to other people. Build relationships. Share your lives in all kinds of ways, all kinds of levels. Baptize. Teach. Live together as community in whatever ways you find to do it, around this person of Jesus Christ and what he's done. From the intimacy of your own home into whatever group you find yourself. Standing at the threshold of a new age. And God says, be strong and courageous. Speak and do the truth. Courageous today for us doesn't mean with our swords uh, battling AI or battling Jericho or, or whatever. I think it means to speak and do the truth. And not as an intellectual thing, not as propositions, as important as that might be, but in the way that Jesus did, full of grace and truth. Be strong and courageous. You don't have to choose to do that. Not just something that happens. It's a choice to be strong. It's a choice to be courageous. It's a choice to speak the truth. It's a, it's a choice to do truth. It's a st- choice to be truth. And do not fear. All of those hundreds of times in the whole scriptures that the words come down from heaven, do not fear. Throughout the history of Egypt, of Israel, all patriarchs, all the leaders, all the prophets, in the Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, prophecy of Isaiah, the angels to the shepherds, what did they say? Do not fear. Jesus to his disciples, 
Do not fear, O little ones. Don't you know I have given you the kingdom? And Paul and the apostles to the early church, do not fear. As you're out planting these colonies, this colony of God's kingdom, where God's space meets our space in this world, do not fear. And I know that that's hard. I know that that's hard. I can't tell you how to do it. I can't get But I do encourage you, whenever fear threatens to overcome you, in whatever way that it does, remember what God says and find a way to push back against it. And one way to do that is to keep hearing the words that also sound all the way through the whole scriptures. The Lord is with you. Wherever you go, he will not leave you or forsake you. God is with Israel. God said it to to Joshua several times as he stood on the brink of that new mission. I am with you. I will never leave you. And Jesus said it to his disciples. Jesus, who himself is Emmanuel, God with us. You go out. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You are never, ever, 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 ever alone. Never. However dark it may seem, however alone it may feel, however painful it may be, even in that moment of death, when it's only you, you are still not alone. Israel standing at the threshold. Jesus' disciples standing at the threshold. Us, if I may be so bold, standing at the threshold. Go. Build that colony. Keep working at it. Not start. We've been doing it. Keep doing it. Be strong and courageous. Speak and do and be truth. And do not fear, for God is with you. Wherever you go, and he will never leave you, even until the end of the age.